I'm so impressed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are so excited to have you here with us for another week, another episode, another great play. And today we we turn directions a little bit. So far this season, we have been kind of zoomed in on new playwrights, and plays of the past 10, 20 years or so. And today we're taking a step back from all of that. We're traveling far back in time to one of the great geniuses of theater history. Not a new playwright to the podcast and definitely not a new play to the world. It is time to talk about the incredible, the great Anton Chekhov and his play The Cherry Orchard. Yes, Anton Chekhov, the, uh, you know, in the category of these kind of Russian realist plays off the, you'll, you'll hear me talking about Konstantin Stanislavski in the context, the father of, of, uh, it's not, it's not realism. What is it? It's naturalism, right? That is his, his, his big thing. Well, yeah. And, and, and Stanislavski talks about, he, he and Chekhov had so many strong disagreements yeah. about Chekhov's plays that like watching some of the back and forth between the two of them is hilarious. This play play they had a lot of tension on uh con uh, uh Chekhov famously as he was writing it thought that he was writing this sort of extravagant comedy almost yeah. farce at times and Konstantin Stanislavski got it he you know he directed it for the Moscow Art Theater of course he famously said this isn't a comedy or farce as you claim it's a tragedy <laughs> <laughs> I've decided <laughs> What two great characters in theater history that that clash so strongly over this play? That isn't that that's a great example of the clash between director and playwright. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I, I'm excited to get to talk about this. Is I mean, this is a play that many of you probably have read before, or at least heard of before. It's got some famous. Uh, obviously, the title of the play, "The Cherry Orchard," it's a very famous image. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, a a theater lot of really historians lines and, from this play yeah. are hilarious. Fears has got the great line. They're they're talking about how old he is, and he says like, "Well, I've lived a lot of years." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a storied play, and, I, and I'm excited that we finally worked our way around to it. Yeah, it'll be a great, great conversation, and we will get to it. But after, we ask you once again to consider heading on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. If you're not already a supporter of the show, we know many of you are. Thank you, thank you if you are. But if you're not, consider becoming a supporter of the show. This show just can't exist in the way that it does now. It, w it would not be alive now. If it were not for the folks who support us over on patreon.com slash no script podcast, because alas, it's not free to make. We love to make it, but it costs money to make. There are hosting fees. There are the costs of purchasing scripts we can't otherwise find. There's a really significant time investment to producing a weekly podcast like this. And, and we just couldn't make it happen if not for the folks that are supporting us over there. If you head over there, you'll find a number of different tiers. Each tier represents a monthly amount that you choose to give towards the cost 
cost of running the show. The lowest amount is just a dollar a month. It totals $12 a year. You set it up to come out of your account automatically. It's really easy and really cheap. We, we really strongly believe that you're getting a dollar a month's worth at least of investment when you with the time that you choose to spend with us. So I really hope you'll consider heading over there. Um, there's other tiers too if you feel like you can give more, but even the dollar a month amount is really, really uh, amazing. It's really helpful to us. So thank you to those of you who are patrons over there. And now back to the script. Yes, back to the script. So I got the context for this play. Now this is a play about which syllabuses are written. So yeah, that's just- <laughs> the context is like theater history since 1904. (laughs) Right, exactly. And some prior to 1904. So I'm going to do like the broad strokes for the context of this. Good luck to me. So this is, as we mentioned, The Cherry Orchard by Anton Chekhov. Um, This is his last play that he wrote somewhere around the 1902-03. The first production was in 1903. um, And that was the production that was directed by Stanislavski. And we already talked about the kind of... uh, uh, I like to imagine this kind of like, you know, uh, t- playful, but also like deeply angry tension around this, this conversation between them, whether it's a comedy or a, uh, or a tragedy, because as we'll find out in the synopsis, there's some big tragic things that happen to the cast of characters. Or are they funny? <laughs> Or are they funny? And it all depends on your point of perspective. Con- uh, uh, Chekhov, of course, being a playwright of the people, he was not part of the aristocracy growing up, so it is possible the argument exists that seeing this aris- aristocratic family fall from grace would be, in his mind, a bit more comedic. Hey, 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 the synopsis <laughs> section is not that long, dude. This is Chekhov. Don't steal that from me. I need every <laughs> sentence you can give me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So we're into the uh, the just the years then that this production happened. In 1903 was the first production. It then got a uh, another production in 1911 in London. That, I mean, I mean, just so many productions of this. Lots of famous actors have tried their hand at it um, at, at these roles. And and the 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 play in general is is viewed in the context of his other of Chekhov's other work. So along with the Seagull, along with Three Sisters, and along with Uncle Vanya, um, this this play stands among to his uh, kind of historical moment plays, right? These 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 are plays derived from a particular time in Russian history prior to the revolution. Uh, notably, uh, well, I think I'll leave the, I'll leave the one notable historical thing for your for your uh, synopsis. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, <laughs> it is. I mean, we so Chekhov has these four major plays that are considered kind of the bastions of his work, and we previously on the podcast in my episode with Dr. Patricia Ralph talked about the Seagull, which is the first of those four major plays and today we come all the way around to the other end to talk about the last and as the two most recent Chekhov plays that I spent any great deal of time with Chekhov made some strides between those two plays I mean he made some moves yeah, there's some absolutely some some really good crafts craftsmanship is evident in this play. Uh, just just to kind of wrap up the context section, this play continues to be produced. Um, uh, in 2018, it was at the Shaw Festival in Ontario. The BBC produced something for BBC Three in 2018. Uh, that that was a new version of it. Uh, I I believe we both wound up listening to the LA Theatre Works production, uh, the audio production of that. So this is a play, and that was a new translation of of the. Play so so yeah this play continues to be produced for its both its like deep 
tragic characters, but also it's really comedic characters. So we, we'll we'll figure out which side of the line we fall on by the end of our discussion, maybe. Yeah, interestingly, this this play has not been really successfully adapted to film. A lot of other Chekhov has. Uh, I think in our conversation on The Seagull, we talked about a really incredible recent movie adaption of The Seagull, which if you haven't watched, you simply must if you love the theater. It, truly, to me, it is one of the most successful play-to-film adaptions I've ever seen. It's really, really good. This one has not. There were a couple of latter half of the 20th century film adaptions. Gerard Butler, I know, was in one. Judy Dench. But both, there are two, I think, if, if I'm recalling. And both were pretty panned by the critics, is my understanding. So I, I think we may be in line for a Cherry Orchard film adaption with a star-studded cast to come about in the next couple of years. I would be thrilled to see that. Yeah, yeah. Move or it. Cherry Orchard the musical. Cherry, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Please no. It probably exists, doesn't it? I mean, that's got to be certainly. out there and it's got to be unwatchable, I would that's, think. That has to have been someone's senior project. Why oh. wasn't it ours? Why wasn't it ours? <laughs> Let's not get into that. <laughs> All right, moving on to the synopsis. If you know Chekhov, you know that synopsis of his work, synopses of his work, are, they're complicated, but also very easy. In this case, Jackson drew the much harder straw because Chekhov's plays are are kind of joked about. Some theorists even kind of seriously look at them being these almost plays of inaction is what they're called about. A lot of Chekhov's plays, the kind of central thing that occurs is like waiting on something. They're they're not plays where a ton happens plot-wise. In fact, because I was just looking for things to fill the synopsis with, I, I, Chekhov, <laughs> he describes that he, he, this is a quote from Chekhov, he says, A play should be written in which people arrive, go away, have dinner, talk about the weather, and play cards. Life must be exactly as it is, and people as they are, not on stilts. Let everything on the stage be just as complicated, and at the same time just as simple as it is in life. So the artificial pumping up of plots with exciting events is not the core reality that you live in when you encounter a Chekhovian work. So this particular play is about a group of aristocrats. Thanks, Jackson, for stealing my opening sentence in your yeah. context. A group of aristocrats, and they, a Russian aristocrats, obviously, and they are about to lose the large estate on which they have lived for many generations of their family. Now, this is an important moment to point out that I am terrible at pronouncing names, and these are very complicated <laughs> Russian names. And this is going to be, for those of you who know how these names should be pronounced, this is going to be a rough episode for you. I'm going to do my very best, but you're just going to have to give me some grace. So, yeah. Uh, Ranyevskaya, is that right? Ranyevskaya, she she is one of the central characters. She has returned home to this estate after five years of being gone to, uh, before the action of the play, her son drowned on the estate So to, and her husband passed. So to escape that grief, she's taken a lover and moved to Paris. That lover was sick for a while in Paris and has actually cast her off, run away and had an affair on her. And so she has returned to her estate in Russia, but she has returned uh, in great debt. Her and her brother Gaev are kind of the two that are left of that generation of family owners of this land. And because partially of the way the family before them has lived, but also the way that they have lived and handled money, 
They're, they're mounted with debts. The interest on their estate has overwhelmed them, and they are facing the auction of their property at the end of the summer. The, the first act of this play takes place in late spring, then over the summer, and then the early fall when the auction takes place, and then uh, finally later on as they're, there's the moving on later on in the fall. So, Ranyaskaya returns. She has two daughters, Anya and Varya. Uh, again, she has a brother, Gaev. Uh, and then there, in the classic Chekhovian way, there is a bunch of other people who are just around. <laughs> there's some servants, of course, but then there's also just like folks that float in of other disciplines that are associated with this family. There is a wealthy merchant, Lopekin. I think that's something like right. Um, and he, his family, notably, were serfs on this land for a long time. So the notable historic event is that in 1861 in Russia, serfdom, private land serfdom, was finally outlawed. And that plays a major role in this play, which occurs, it depends on who you ask, either several decades or almost a half century after that. And so... Uh, Lopakin is a uh, a descendant of serfs on the land, but has worked his way up, and he is now a very wealthy merchant. He is around because he because he is loosely courting Varya, which is the daughter of Ranyevskaya, uh, who is the the current owner of the land. Loosely courting her, she expects him to propose. In fact, has been expecting him to propose for a while, but he continues not to do it. Then there also is a sort of revolutionary kind of student, uh, Trofimov, and he is uh, loosely and I think generally in a disliked fashion, he is courting Anya. Uh, then there is a friend who is also a landowner, a friend of the family who owns a different plot of land, um, Pishik. And then there are a number of different servants, including the notable, very, very old Fierce, who has been around since before serfdom was outlawed in Russia. Uh, and, of course, Yepe Kodov, who is the bumbling manservant, estate clerk kind of character who something terrible happens to him every day. Yasha is a young guy who is a servant to uh, Ranyevskaya who went with her to Paris and has been forced to return to Russia and hates it. So all this stuff is going on, and, and that that's, just, that's the broad sweep of the play in terms of plot. They're losing the estate. Let me give you just a brief kind of one sentence, two sentence of each act. Act one is the night that they are returning, uh, uh, the folks that went to Paris to get Ranyevskaya and then Ranyevskaya herself, who's the one that's been gone for five years. They are returning to the estate in terrible debt, and Lopekin says, we've got to figure this out. We're going to rent out some land to solve this problem for you, right? And Ranyevskaya and Gaev say, no way, man. That sounds terrible. We're not going to do that. We don't have any other solutions, but we're not doing that. Then uh, several weeks later into the kind of the middle of the summer, uh, lots of people are out on the grounds of this estate. There's some lovely fumbling comedy kind of almost romances that occur. Um, and again, Lopekin tries to convince Ranyevskaya and Gaev that they need to divide up the land and rent it, uh, but they are not interested in doing that again. Gaev has some kind of possible solutions, but they don't think any of them are really going to work. Again, they don't really have a plan. Um, act three is the night of the auction, which was supposed to take place in August. So we've moved forward again a couple of months in time. For some reason, these aristocrats are throwing an elaborate ball on the night where their estate is being sold out from under them. And they even comment on the ridiculousness of that, but they are doing it. And they, it, 
the, the auction happens off stage. Everybody's just waiting for the news of what's going to happen. Lopakin and Gaev return home from the auction, and it is revealed that Lopakin, who was, again, whose family were serfs on the land for so many years, who's worked his way up to being a wealthy merchant, has purchased the estate himself. And he now owns the estate. The family reacts to that. He says he's going to chop down the famous cherry orchard on the estate. Uh, And then the fourth act is the family who previously owned the estate leaving the estate now, leaving Lopakin in charge of the estate as the cherry orchard is being chopped down. The play ends tragically or comically, depending on your interpretation of the play, (laughs) with old servant fears being left alone in the house and, yes, dying. Yeah. As the cherry orchard is chopped down in audibly in the background, and that's the cherry orchard. There you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so as you mentioned at the top of your context, you know, and and though the, a good deal of time passes, if I understand the play correctly, like weeks go by between uh, acts in some cases. You know, there's not a lot of, like, movement. People come to the house, people leave the house. Um, people come to the house owning the house and leave not owning the house. Um, <laughs> but that that's the broad sweep of it. And yet, what is being, like, slowly uh, realized through these conversations with people is is part of the, the real revelation of this play. Not necessarily action-based, plot-based uh, progression, but rather these this time spent with these characters and the realization of their their worldview and their the way that they have lived kind of crumbling around them, literally, in, in some cases, or, or, or chopped down around them by the end of the play. Yeah, Ch- Chekhov in general, and this play as a really good example of it, is, is highly character and psychology-based. What is really occurring in the play is these tumultuous journeys of characters clashing and ultimately victory or defeat among those clashing characters by the end of the play. And they're also, because they're so highly character motivated, uh, are also open to a lot of interpretation. You know, The big question for the cherry orchard revolves around Lopakina and his ultimate insidiousness or friendliness. How much does he feel love and respect and loyalty for the family on the estate and has a chance to buy the estate and does and how much does he feel disdain and disrespect and, and <coughs> excuse me and animosity towards this family that then ultimately revol- uh, results in him purchasing the estate and and there are clues probably either way depending on what you're looking for but the the investigation in an ensemble makes into those character psychologies determines so much of the playing experience yeah absolutely the way that you deal with subtext the way that you deal with intonation of some of these lines kind of vastly different readings of the play because uh, I, I, I like that you brought up Lopak- uh, here we go I'm also going to be taking a crack at these names uh, Lopakin is how I'm going to say it Lopakin Lopakin either way <laughs> sorry um, yeah, so the- <laughs> there are those of you out there who are really good at this and, and I did listen to some people pronounce the names but I just have no brain for keeping that around I apologize <laughs> We're doing our best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Lopakin, he has this 
a pretty compelling monologue at the beginning that and and a lot of lines throughout that say that kind of speak to his love for Ravnaskaya. Um well, and, and his maybe. <laughs> well, exactly though, right? Like that like depending on how you read them, he has these these stories of like her standing up for him when her, his father was beating him up. Uh, yeah, so kind let's of, let's read that. I'm going to read that little monologue yeah. piece of it because it's a really interesting study into him and and how you could decide what his motivations for the play are. So he's talking about her return. This is very early in the play. One of the first things that happens. And he says uh, he's talking about uh, Ronnie Skyve and and how she has been um, kind of. He says kind of a, a kind landowner for a while. He tells this story. We were out in the yard together for some reason, and he, his father, was drunk, and he doesn't. All the characters in Chekhov never refer to each other by the names that the script uses to refer to them. So he doesn't call her <laughs> Ronnie Skyve, but I will. Ronnie Skyev, she was still young, all skinny, brought me to the wash bin in this very room in the nursery. Don't cry, little peasant, she says. It'll heal before your wedding. So, that, first of all, that's a great laugh line um, in the way that right. he tells the story. Probably one of those indications of the comic nature. But what is that story about, right? Is it about how kind she was to him? Or is it about the fact that she refers to him as a peasant? That she's not all that concerned about his injury. It'll heal before your wedding one day. Right, right, and and all of and all of this is tied into like how uh, how Lopakin thinks of himself. Like so, so once you once you when you're making this decision, this is one of the just like the really fun things about Chekhov, and I'm just gonna nerd out about it for a second because there's just so many points that you could go to his lines and be like, well, in this point, he's actually introspectively ashamed of himself as a peasant because there are monologues later where he talks about he doesn't really read, he doesn't really speak well, he's not he's he's not at home in this group, and yet. You go to another one, and it's all about him striving for independence and freedom, and and pushing towards what he feels is right for the land, what he thinks will be best for the the land and for this family. When they don't do it, he decides to take matters into his own hands. So you get to pick, right, uh, to some degree, how you're going to play him off. Yeah, and and check off in in probably the best example of this among his plays has set these journeys where people are on the cusp, Lopakin is on the cusp of being something new through the entirety of the play. And he has set these personal human journeys in these incredible settings which mirror them. And I'm not just talking about, of course, the cherry orchard itself as an incredible natural setting for the play, but in each act, the the setting is a world on the cusp of something. It's incredible. In act one, they are waiting up very late into the night for Anyskaev and her her uh, uh, escorts, you know, all these different people that are with her, to return. And it's gotten so late into the night that it's almost morning. The sun is about to come up. They're literally on the cusp of a new day. And that occurs as they're on stage trying to get each other to go to bed. The next scene, the, the next act, act two, they're out on the grounds and it is a world on the cusp of sunset. The sun literally sets and goes down while the characters are on stage. The next scene, this big party, is on the night where they are going to find this information about the the auction out. And the whole world of that play, or of that act, every character is on the cut. What is going to happen next? There is an anxiousness about what is the next step. Things are about to change one way or the other forever. And then act four, of course, is the house empty. 
ready to be in its next stage, which will be being knocked down, the family pulling their bags out of the house. I mean, every act is a world where something is about to happen that's going to change it. And it's incredible to watch these human dramas in that environment. And also to think of the the world that was changing at, as the audience was receiving this play. So in some ways, you have this encapsulated in the character of Trofimon and and in Anya. These two kind of young characters. Uh, Trofimon is a student. Um, uh, he's got all these kind of revolutionary ideas. Certainly, maybe maybe they wouldn't have been sp- uh, spoken specifically as revolutionary in the historical context of the play. But in the watching of the play, revolution is stirring. Right? There's stories of this play being shut down. By, or some of the lines being cut out by the czarist authorities because of the revolutionary nature of of some of these lines, and and this is like the, the, the especially for Trofimon and then Anya as well kind of jumps on this this bandwagon of a new world is coming, something new is coming that uh, is probably not on this land that the family cares so much about. Then that that kind of excitement and that stirring brings about fear in some characters or excitement in some others. Absolutely. And one of the things that I just love about Chekhov is these incredible lines that will just be with you forever when you experience them. I, I love the seagull. And I will, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the character's name right now, but I will never forget. It starts with an M. It's like Masha or something. I will never forget in, in the first part of the seagull when Masha says, I wear black because I am in mourning for my life. Yeah. And that's an incredible <laughs> line. I'll never forget that line. And in this line, I've already quoted one of the fears line about how old he is. That's such a great line. But in this line, uh, the the kind of bumbling estate clerk character when he says every day i every day something terrible every day i suffer some kind of misfortune I mean, they are just these absurd, and of course, these are all English translations of the line. I, I am aware of that, but the strength, the 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 boldness, the strength with which Chekhov has written these these incredibly memorable sayings, character moments is is just overwhelming. Well, and and there's been some uh, like there, there's so many like stark characters in this, or not stark. Stark's the wrong word. Distinct characters in this that some have even uh, allowed in, in the comedy camp uh, for for folks who think this is a comedy. Some have even like called it almost farcical in nature. And and uh, there are some characters that that give it that little bit of a leaning, right? Certainly, Yepikodov is one of them. The the kind of uh, bumbling clerk who like has a cockroach in the bottom of his glass. Yeah. At one point. If you haven't read it, virtually every scene and every yeah. <laughs> scene where he's off stage, something really unlucky happens to him. Basically, it's a comic trope, and it it runs through the whole of the play, and it's yeah. it walks a very fine line that only a master really can walk of being <laughs> just just not quite too much. But darn <laughs> but close. Real close. And it's by the like... end of the play, when continually things like, I think in his last scene, he walks on and he like can't talk. He's like talking like this. And, and <laughs> Lobakayev is like, what the heck is wrong with your voice, man? He's like, I was drinking some water and something was in it. And I, just, I got it in my throat. And every all the characters on stage are like, of course. <laughs> just naturally of you course. would do this. And as the audience, that's exactly the right reaction because as the audience, you're like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you also see this in characters like Dunyasha, who's this kind of uh she she's she's uh 
she's in love with uh, the, the the clerk Yep Yepikodov uh, as well, and she but she's like floating through a couple different relationships. She's in love with Yasha, the young man who's just come back from Paris, and a lot of her interactions also hold this kind of uh, flippant or just here here for funny sort of things, like dropping glasses or or or, or things like that into the scene to just kind of get. In some ways, it's to have a laugh, but I wonder if there's also like this juxtaposition that needs to happen in that that kind of clarifies for us the big points that are coming uh, from the the more tragic side of the play. Well, yeah, I mean, the servant characters as a group are generally very funny characters. Yasha, the kind of uh, manservant driver kind of character, um, he's he's always making kind of cracks about Russia, about rural life, about his passion to get back to Paris. He's always sort of uh, wooing the women that he's on stage with. I mean, that's very, very funny. You point out the, the funny things that are about Dunyasha. And, and all of those servant characters and fears, of course, like, we can't not mention fears when we talk about funny characters. The dude is just so old and his age and his sort of inability to keep up, to hear things, is just made a huge joke of all the time. And so they they become kind of a class of comic characters and it does end up kind of pointing to the odd comic farcical moments of the 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 aristocracy, the the wealthy family class too. Now there are there there's there's an oddity in this play. It's it's a strange thing as long as we're on like the you know these kind of comedic characters that jar us out of the tragedy of the play. There's also this this strange stage direction in the play of of a sound, um, some sort of uh, sound. And I'll just read the stage direction here. They're all they're all sitting out on the lawn. They're talking about. Oh, whatever it is they're talking about on that particular day outside. Um, the history, certainly the land itself, the, the the struggle with trying to figure out what to do with the cherry orchard. Um, Uncle Gaev has this tendency to kind of talk on a little bit, and he's talking on, and they're, they're all sitting there in this kind of uh, uh, natural sunset moment. And then this stage directions happens. All sit lost in thought. The silence is broken only by the subdued muttering of fierce... And suddenly a distant sound is heard, as if from the sky, like the sound of a snapped string mournfully dying away. And, notably, this is not just for the audience's sake. The characters hear this sound and remark on it. Many of them do. And some of like some of these characters are in various stages of of of, of mental withitness. Um, but across many of the characters, uh, like this crosses all the lines of those. It's not just Fierce who hears it, who's kind of on his way to senility. Many of the characters hear it and remark on it. And it, um, it occurs one more time as well. The, the very end of the play, as Fierce is <laughs> collapsed and dying or dead on the stage after being abandoned by everybody who's moving out, Lopakaya uh, uh, for just the summer, uh, because now he owns the estate and he's going away to do whatever he's going to do, and he's going to come back and manage it and divide it into rental properties later on. But then, of course, the whole wealthy family are moving out permanently to go all the different places they're going to go to have a life. So he He's old, fears alone. He collapses dead, and you get virtually the exact same stage direction. Uh, my translation's a, a hair different than Jackson's, but it says a far-off sound, as if from the sky, the sound of a breaking string dying away and sad. 
Yeah. And and notably, I mean, so so Fierce is in that moment. Fierce is on stage in this moment. And Fierce gives us the only kind of uh, extra information about this sound, which is in that in the scene that I described earlier, they're out in the lawn. Um, he says, the same thing happened before the Troubles. An owl hooted and a samovar hissed continually. I don't know exactly what a samovar is. I assume it's a stringed instrument. So, and the Troubles, of course, he's referring to are all this crazy stuff that happened when serfdom was finally outlawed in Russia, the big the big freedom. So major, at least two of these three moments are major moments of change in the estate and the surrounding area. The, the freedom of the serfs that Fears describes remembering, that's a big one. You can hear the string breaking. He says he heard it back then as well. And then Fears dying at the very end of the play after the whole family has left him behind and has moved out is a huge change for the estate and the surrounding countryside. The one in the middle is more gray. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's almost this like weird magical moment or like mm-hmm. something supernatural is happening. And, and like... And I just wonder what it is. I've said I I I just don't know. <laughs> like it's, I've just it's curiosity. a very strange piece of it's, the play. It's almost Brecht like, right? This kind of jarring uh, disassociation from the action of the play. The the recording that I had listened to had like an uh, like an odd sort of ephemeral noise mixed with the sound of a guitar string going like. So it's it's not like a normal sound you would hear on the lawn of a Russian estate. So and yet the characters do hear it and it's somewhat ominous to them. Yeah, they they all recognize that it is kind of a world shattering noise and not in terms of its volume but in terms of its ominous significance to steal your word and they they kind of try to pass it off in that act two scene well i guess it must be that like a a string snap or cable snapped in a well a couple miles away is how they so if that's how they think they describe the sound what they think might have been try to imagine like what that sound would be a right. cable snapping in a well a couple or a of mine. miles yeah, away yeah. or a mine. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a mine. I mean, that the sound that comes out of that is a very strange, reverberant, odd, shaking noise that, that would be startling. And mm-hmm. I, I don't really know what Chekhov is intending with this sort of supernatural. I mean, it, it clearly is some sort of way in which the changes that are occurring to this area, maybe to these people specifically, to the natural environment, are kind of cross-roading at, at a moment in time in these major events. And the the world reverberates as these things meet in the middle, finally, with this noise. But I don't know what it is. Right, right. And well, I think there is something in the, there is, there is a, what feels like a small thing, I think, to our modern ears, but I think is actually a fairly significant thing that happens right after the sound in the middle. A stranger walks up to the group. This stranger is wandering through. Um, he's kind of disheveled. Uh, he's, he's slightly drunk, my stage directions have. Um, he, he, he comes up to this group of people who believe that they are the aristocratic nobility of Russia. And he walks up to them on their land and asks them for money. Now, now, now that doesn't sound too odd to me. 
But I think it is significantly odd to these characters. You see, and and even scary, uh, Varya gets fully frightened. Um, and ends up leaving the scene, which prompts some some uh, some uh, of the of the more romantic moments for Trofimon, Trofimov and Anya, because uh, Vanya or I'm sorry, not Vanya, Varya has been watching them. So so this this interloper comes in. This this person comes onto their land and and like has the you know like put on your like your noble hat for a moment out there, listeners. <laughs> has the audacity to come and speak to us. So so I, I think that is no small thing in the context of these people's lives. Like this is, uh, on their land is this kind of like, it, it was a serfdom to them growing up, right? Like they were they were little kings and queens in their own castles. And so this act of this, this stranger coming up, asking them for money, um, the uh, giving him money and he goes away, they give him like a gold piece and he goes away. I think this is actually a, it's meant to be quite stirring for the characters, a, sh- a sign that there is there is no longer this like invisible sort of protection or cultural uh, scaredness of the nobility and their land and their position. Well, and it, the, the moment in Act 2 has just come after some really significant conversations that are that end up becoming kind of the common some of the commentary of the play, the political, the socioeconomic commentary. Uh, Chekhov is famous for the ways in which these kind of characters with distant, different disciplines come and clash and provide some commentary to the incredible human drama that plays out in his stories. And we've just gotten a, a really stirring speech from Tromikov of of how the intelligentsia of Russia are are this really this aristotic class that lives far above everybody else and they're not really doing anything to improve Russian society they're not even really doing anything to improve themselves they're just sort of endlessly spinning and Russia is dying and and Lopakin uh, has has given a nice short little monologue about how he deals with all this money now that's one of the ways that he's made his money he's a merchant he deals with all these different sums of money, his and other people's, he says. And he says he can see what people are like when he does that. And he can see how they are hoarding and abusing their privilege of having this money. Uh, This is a quote from this line that occurs just before this crazy noise. Lopakin says, sometimes when I can't get to sleep, I think, God, you gave us such enormous feasts, such bountiless fields, or such boundless fields, I mean, such vast horizons that living here, we really should be giants. And Gaev, literally just before the noise, has recited a beautiful speech about sort of the eternity of nature that gives life, that also gives death along with life. And you can see that perhaps this is a moment, again, we're on the cusp of something, of this incredibly privileged group of Russian elites realizing that great change is coming. And even if it's not in their best interest, it may be in best interests of the society around them. I'm not sure that that is a conclusion those characters really come to in the course of the play. But this is one of the moments where they really maybe have the chance to grasp at that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and then if you if you think about that as this this setting in which this odd noise happens, and then you compare it to the statement at the end of the play when the second time this odd noise happens, um, and you, you see the full the full ramifications of that line of thought, right? The characters have now realized, maybe maybe not on like a personal level, but on a material level, that their stuff is gone, um, their, their their world is gone, and it's changing around them, and and so we are we are echoed back to that moment of of when these characters were reflecting about that change though not fully aware of the magnitude it was going to affect their lives yeah and and it some of the play is kind of like well these are wealthy people who have everything going for them right like, <laughs> you live in a world where you get you know everything you want you've lived on this beautiful estate and Bakin has presented them options to save the estate a number of times and they're refusing even to separate it into summer cottages and rent them. And so it is this kind of, in a, in a classical sense, tragic cycle of them, their, their own faults, their own sins. In fact, before the big sound snap uh, noise moment that Gaev and uh, Ranovskaya have some really vulnerable moments where they admit that where they are is really the result of their own kind of gluttonous sin that they've put themselves in these positions. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the that's the really fascinating thing around. I mean, it's why it's called the cherry orchard, right? Because what you have in this play are two different worldviews of what the cherry orchard or land or privilege or possessions are for, right? And they're and I think I think both of them are pretty privileged <laughs> opinions on what that's for. But you have the the uh, oh boy, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to the character names. Here we go. We have what uh, <laughs> Ranovskaya appreciates the land for, which is this beautiful. Uh, cherry orchard that makes its way into encyclopedias. It's well known for being the largest cherry orchard in all the world, or something like that. It's certainly all of Russia. Um, and, and, and crucially, it's it's vitally important to her and her memory of her childhood, who she is, the ability to run into this beautiful natural setting. So much of Gaev and Ranaskaya's discussion around the cherry orchard is around the role it played in who they became. Their family has owned it. This incredible beauty has been theirs for so long. And I don't even mean it in like a Scroogean like ownership way. I just mean that they have had access to it and it has formed them. I mean, so much of the play is about memory and about the different contrasting ways people remember things. And that is their memory, their rootedness in the cherry orchard. Right, the, the the home of the cherry orchard for them is is a is a powerful resonance, and that's opposed to Lopakins, which is I like I can see how we can progress, right? Like the this land could be used for something. Like you don't even harvest the cherries is is one of his lines. <laughs> it's like you're not even doing anything with the cherries that the trees grow. You just have them. You could be doing something with them. Why aren't you? Especially if it could save your family could save your home, like bring in the income that you need to survive. So you have these, these two competing, this uh, it's close to nostalgia, but I think I'll also give it the, the weight of like belonging and home um, that, that the characters are holding with the problem solving, the, the uh, caretaking of resources, the, the wise decision-making that, that I think Lopakin would describe for himself. Yeah. And that, uh, that's the best version of that, of course, but along with Lopakin, Keen's vision of what this estate can become, 
comes the chopping down of the cherry orchard. He, right. There, there is no, um, there, there, there is no uh, appreciation or respect. This might be the worst version of it, but let's say it. there's no appreciation or respect for the beauty and the presence of such an incredible thing. We know from different people who have looked into the different numbers that are used in the play to describe the size of the estate cherry orchard that a cherry orchard of this size never existed in Russia, as far as we can tell. And so this is a, an exceptional thing that Chekhov has imagined for the play, a cherry orchard of such size that it has not existed in Russia. And Lopakin says, chop it all down and put summer cottages on it, man. Make a buck. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 this like industry, right? This 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 thing that's that's coming that's that wants to use up the land. Um, that it's part of the whole movement of industry around that time. By the end of the play, another person comes in and says the English are here and they want to harvest like chalk off of my land or something like that. So this is all happening around them. And then on a and, on a, and the the people that Lopakin wants to sell or rent actually the the pieces of land that will become summer cottages are in my play it's translated as weekenders which I right. love that translation because that's like still a word that we use in scorn like tourists yeah. weekenders <laughs> people who don't own <laughs> land out here they're just coming from the city where they work as professionals as weekenders to their yeah. summer place. You exactly. Can hear the scorn in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they can come and be on the river for a weekend, and yeah, no, absolutely. That's like the 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 distaste that Gaev and Ranovskaya have for that is very clear. Oh, uh, you you also have a, a a third kind of a third level to the cherry orchard though that is brought in by uh, Trofimov. Uh, the the student and is Man, you're latched so much onto. more confident with the names. I so appreciate it. you. Just said it. You just said it. I'm so impressed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and but this idea is latched onto by Arya. Um, or sorry, Anya. Now, see, now you cursed yeah. me. Yes, I. <laughs> you got the two sisters combined there. Uh, yep. <laughs> Latched onto by Anya, and I think that actually offers some of the hope going forward for the play, um, for this family. And that Trofimon identifies the orchard as uh, the souls, uh, each tree being the soul of a serf. Right, the the orchard for him is indicative of serfdom, of the uh, oppression that the noble class had over the people who they they essentially enslaved on their lands. Like serfdom is a fancy word for a type of enslavement, um, and uh, and so uh, Trafavon just like really encourages Anya through the play to leave this place, have freedom of this place. Only through, uh, you know, leaving it and and suffering can we hope to move forward from this position, this awful part of our history. And and Ari, uh, Anya latches onto that and, and provides the excitement at the end of the play for that potential freedom, for the the recompense for the sins of her family, as as probably Trofimov would would uh, Trofimov would uh, would put it. Uh, she she casts a vision for their future where they're like working and reading books together and having like this 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 uh, kind of uh, you know working class idealized family life as opposed to this idealized no- nobility life that they had been living. Yeah, there's this generational 
a viewpoint that changes between the different generations of the family itself. Raniskaya, she and, and Gaev have this perspective of the cherry orchard as this incredible thing that they grew up with. And like uh, in one of the really poignant moments in Act 1, Raniskaya looks out into the cherry orchard in the first glints of morning and she sees her mother. Long dead, of course. Her mother walking the ground. So there's th- there's that view. And then Anya comes, and in her conversation with Trump- Trofimov, she discusses, she says the line is something like, I don't have the same love for the cherry orchard that I did when I was young. She has grown into a view of the cherry orchard as representative of something different. And Trofimov, as you suggest, says, well, one of the things it represents is the generations of people who were enslaved here. And, and, and we, we can't move forward when that is still the world that you look out on, like Gaev and Ramaskaya do, and say, oh, there's my mother walking around. It's so beautiful. We can't do anything different. And, and Trofimov says, that is, a, that is an enslaved view in and of itself, right? It binds you to a history of oppression of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, I mean, he's, he's, I feel like that scene for him is, is the, is a little bit of the, like, the, um, the idealistic, uh, undertone of the play, right? For the most part, he's a fairly, uh, beaten up on character. Like everyone keeps saying like how, how like you're, you're a 50 year old student, right? He's like, no, I'm 26. It's not that funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that, that is the part where he brings the, like the, the student's perspective of, of the, the potentiality for a world that can move forward, that has to acknowledge the wrong it did certainly, um, but then work towards a better future through, uh, I believe the line is uh, only by extraordinary unceasing labor. Can they, can they accomplish this, uh, this, this trying to reclaim this, this broken past. Well, and that's what's so, it's so hard to know what to do with what eventually happens in the play because Lopakin, taking away anything you know about the characters or anything you know about the sympathetic lenses through which Chekhov shows us these people, I mean, this is a story about a guy whose ancestors, not even his ancestors, his father and grandfather were slaves and serfs on the land that he has made enough money in his life to grow up and purchase. That is an incredible story. And I, I'm not not even saying that it's not in presented that way in the play, but it is presented alongside a portrait of folks who are really broken by that change. the The, the scene where uh, Lopakin has announced it in the end of the in the end of Act Three, the big ball scene. He's announced it. He's gone back on into the party. You hear the party going on, and Ranovskaya is alone and collapsed in a chair on stage. It's a heartbreaking, sympathetic, very sympathetic portrait by Chekhov of the the way that these two humans have come to turmoil and the triumph of one over the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, and then even in that scene, right, the 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 main dyad, right, are, are those two worldviews. 
right? But even in that scene, you get uh, Anya coming up to her crying at the end of it and already starting to cast this this vision, this this uh, uh, other other world that they now can live in. We'll plant a new orchard, more luxuriant than this one. You'll see it and understand. Joy, quiet, deep joy will sink into your soul. Um, she, she starts speaking over her mother. So you have, yeah, yeah, there's the, the main contention and then like this undercurrent of maybe the young, like it's all, it's certainly the, the young, maybe the young can save us. Um, the young folks bringing this, 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 this hope and hope in a future joy into the conversation. Okay. So what do you think <laughs> comedy or tragedy? And let's just say, uh, just to restate one more time that Chekhov not only thinks it's a comedy, but has quite literally titled the play a comedy. <laughs> it's the cherry orchard subtitle, a comedy in four acts. Right. Now it, that sounds pretty tragic and serious, what we've described so far. Yeah. And again, the final image of the play is the old servant dying on stage after being left alone by all of this family and even the new owners of the estate. Right. I mean, <laughs> so so I think there's a strong argument for either one. Um, I think the strongest argument is that it's both. Um, and, and anyone who writes a comedy will probably uh, attest to the fact that any comedy should have the element of the tragic in it. Otherwise, it is truly just a farce or just kind of a, 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 an entertainment show, right? I don't think that this is just an entertainment show. It's talking about something big. Now, I, I think, I think to, tr to call it just fully a, con a comedy and to say that this is not in some way tragic, that there are not dramatic elements going on, to accomplish that... You might you you would have to have Chekhov writing from a position of such um, disdain for the nobility, right? Like this play would have to be just such a scathing critique of the nobility and how stupid this worldview they hold is for it to be a comedy. And I just don't see that in the lines as they come to me. <laughs> well, here here's an, an, an a thought, which is that we I, we've dis, we've gone back and forth a little bit here towards the end of the conversation about the tension of the play, which is these tragic, terrible, painful things happening to really obtuse rich folk. And you sort of wonder if maybe that's where some of the, the comedy is. I mean, it, it really is almost undeniably structured more like a tragedy where and even kind of a greekish tragedy i mean even yeah. even going back right because this is about ronevskaya and her brother but mostly her uh and uh, by her own admission losing the thing that is so important to her by just due to her own like negligence and debt collecting and, and, and so some of the like what Chekhov would have called comedy might be these people being the these people who we are not really meant to to sympathize with, or maybe maybe a better way to say that would be who it's it could be hard to sympathize with, being put into incredibly sympathetic situations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. So then. <laughs> well, if if. If the sympathetic situation is losing your entire estate and, and land, 
like that 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 maybe humanizes them right or lose may, maybe maybe the real way to humanize it is losing your home losing your belonging losing your your family mooring that would be a way to kind of have them be us uh, more sympathetic to to the plight and yet and yet they it's 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 hard to like counterbalance that with how especially like the uncle right the uncle is he admittedly has had like two strokes or something like that but he'll just like wander off in conversation um and so you get the sense of almost the dotage of these uh nobles and and like is is there this kind of like this 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 cringy laughing at them that happens in the play do you think well i i don't know if the the plight of the the family is laugh ha ha funny some of it is sometimes right. but but <laughs> the 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 elements of it which are uh sympathetic right them losing their home cast out ultimately aren't all that bad for them, right? I think it's Gaia who walks yeah. in in act four after the estate has been sold. There's stuff moving out. It's the day they're going to leave. And I'm just quoting now. Gaia says, in actual fact, everything really is fine now. Before the cherry orchard was sold, we were all worried. We were all suffering. But then once the question was decided once for an all, once and for all irretrievably, then everyone calmed down. We even felt quite happy. <laughs> right, and and they're all going on, not even like to the poorhouse, not even like to debtor's prison, not even right. to the streets. They're just like going on to work. They're gonna get some jobs, and, and so the the or contrast, Paris. the comic commentary that's more like satire than uh, than it is like a big uh, you know haha funny comedy. It, the contrast is tragic situations for comic characters. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so I wonder then if, I mean, just to really kind of lean into the Greek tragedy thing, I wonder if the tragic hero, you know, the thing that leaves at the end and makes the world better is in fact the, the cherry orchard. Um, and the thing that we're watching throughout well, the play—do you think the world is made better? That's an interesting statement because the <laughs> the final world of the play is the noise of the cherry orchard being chopped down. And I guess in my mind and experience, we're meant to feel bad about that. And perhaps I'm just uh, miss—you know—that that has just missed me. But I think we're supposed to mourn the cherry orchard being chopped down and the fact that Lopakin is going to do that when he takes over the land. So I, I don't know. Is the world better? I mean, the house is going to get torn down. I think the world is is better. But I mean, in the same way that you grieve Oedipus when he leaves with his eyes gouged out, right? Like it's not a good thing that the tragic hero has to be, you but, know, but cast like out Thebes or killed. Thebes is definitely better for Oedipus realizing that, you know, he's sleeping with his mother and that's caused all this problem for Thebes. But mm -hmm. it the cherry orchard and the estate have only been maintained in their current form by the presence of the family. And and I, I wonder if what's happening in that final scene is Chekhov says the world of this estate is now going to be bad. Weekenders are coming. <laughs> the cherry orchard is getting chopped down. The beautiful house where their mother used to walk around is going to be raised to the ground. So we get this 
this terrible thing that has befallen the estate now. And at the same time, you get fears abandoned and left alone. And there's this almost satiric contrast of the world is in a bad place now, but those weren't all that good of people, <laughs> even right. when they were here. Sure, absolutely. They left this guy to die. <laughs> I think if you absolutely, so certainly it's sad that Fears dies at the end of the play. But I think if, you, if you're treating the land and the cherry orchard and the house and all the kind of nostalgic things as Thebes in in our in our analogy of the Greek theater, um, that is a bad thing. I think that if you if you treat the family as Thebes mm. and the orchard as the tragic hero I see. the the removal of the orchard from the family's life leaves them in a better position than when they were before because they were self-deceived or, or even if the orchard isn't the tragic hero the orchard could be the tragic fall right it could be the sin yeah it could be yeah, the yeah. sleeping with your mother in oedipus rex right it is the and and uh, Trami, uh trofimov trofimov <laughs> uh-huh. that's what we talked about right he describes the orchard that way it is yeah. a legacy of this serfdom this enslavement the every every trunk represents a soul that was enslaved here that is the thing which they have held on to that they must now cast out and then the the family is going to be better and maybe even the the area is going to be better Right, and that that realization of the truth that was already there, that really at the start of the play, the orchard wasn't theirs anymore. It was so far down into interest, and they were just kind of living a lie for a good chunk of the play, and only in letting go of that lie can they move into Anya's vision for joy and a, and a deeper real, a deep understanding of the world that they are in. Yeah, she's definitely the optimist of the group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably the time we have. I want to wrap up just by... Uh, quoting the another great Russian writer and thinker, uh, Tolstoy, who talked about this drama. And, and Chekhov had said that Chekhov didn't really think any of his plays were all that good. He, he was trying to create new forms for the theater. Uh, and he thought maybe the forms would stick around, but the plays themselves might not. Um, but in response to that way of thinking by Chekhov, Tolstoy predicted that in the future, perhaps a hundred years hence, it's now a hundred and twenty years hence, a little, a little less, but more or less. People, he says, people will be amazed by what they find in Chekhov about the inner workings of the human soul. And he was specifically talking about this play, but Chekhov's writings in general. And now, twenty twenty one, just about a hundred years later, uh-huh. one hundred and twenty, we are we are amazed by the what we find in Chekhov about the inner workings of the human soul. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's so much to, to uh, get into just in the minutia of lines in this play and the way these characters talk about themselves and their realities uh, that we could spend. Gaev makes pool analogies the whole play. That's awesome. I want to like, I want to be the kind of person in my life. Like when I say something right or I succeed, (laughs) I'm just like a blue ball corner pocket. Then have your, you know, nieces all grown at the, that you've done it again. Yeah, doing <laughs> yeah. it again. Yeah, yeah. Makes a great um, speech about a bookshelf. That's a great moment. That is a great moment. So many great moments in the play. So if there are more that you would like to continue talking about, we'd love to get to keep talking about this play with you. And the conversation can go on through the magic of social media or the, the fallen magic of social. You get the point. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're on at the username at no script podcast. You can find us on any of those sites. We also have a Gmail no script podcast at gmail.com. 
Hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about the cherry orchard with you. Absolutely. And if you like this episode, or if you didn't, but you liked another episode, or you want to point us out for how you don't like any of our episodes, for whatever reason, point us out to folks. Tell your friends, your family, <laughs> other people you know that like theater about No Script, the podcast, and the conversations that we're having about scripts. That would be hugely helpful to us and enriching for the people that you send our way, I hope. If you want them to connect them to us, they can find us on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, those regular places. You can go to Podbeam, which is where we're hosted. But the easiest way is just to like us on Facebook, and then you'll see the advertisement for the play that's coming out the following Monday, and then a link to that episode every Monday. Um, that's a great place to send folks who don't have a ton of technological knowledge about getting onto Spotify and stuff. If they can use Facebook, they can listen to No Script the Podcast. So send them our way. So uh, until next week, when we are talking about another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks so much for joining us for No Script the Podcast. That's for Danya. <laughs>